Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Empowering Equality with the IWSCC, or Inclusive Workplace and Supply Council of Canada. I'm so happy you're here uh, for yet another one of our very interesting podcasts. Uh, you're going to love our guests today. But first, just a few thank yous. Our, our ASL interpretation, if you're watching this on YouTube, is sponsored by RBC Royal Bank and supplied by Maple Communications. And our show is produced by Pod Supply. So um, I just wanted to, first of all, thank our guest for coming. Um, I've really gotten to know him over the last couple of years. He's a supplier that's been certified with IWSCC out on the East Coast. I had the pleasure of meeting him just at uh, one of our events in Halifax last month. Um, so I would like you to meet Ian McVicker. Uh, Ian, um, there's so much that you do, and I'm so excited to be able to talk to you. Uh, and that's when we when we were talking in Halifax, and I said, okay, we need to do a podcast because there's so much that you you know and do in all of your experience. So we're going to chip away a little bit at it today. But if you could just take a second and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what it is that you do currently. Sure. Thanks, Deidre. Uh, I would like to describe myself as a traumatic event specialist because that sort of covers the uh, two sides of what I do. Uh, on the large scale, sort of big hand, big map, um, I have a PhD in intelligence analysis, um, ex-military. I spent uh, 42 years in the Canadian Armed Forces. I had numerous overseas deployments. And uh, unfortunately, I guess I could say I've had uh, first uh, person, up close and personal experience with traumatic events, both in terms of uh, being in conflict zones, seeing the impact uh, that conflict and war has on uh, both the military people who fight it and on the civilian population. And then the other aspect of traumatic events specialist is that uh, uh, I'll be upfront. Uh, I have post-traumatic stress disorder due to my experiences in the military. And that awoke in me a curiosity about why are people resilient? How do they respond to traumatic events in their lives? And I became a trauma-informed uh, yoga therapy certified teacher and a trauma-informed mindfulness coach. And I continue to work in those fields, uh, working for uh, myself as a coach, uh, for the City of Halifax Recreation Commission, and also for a private yoga studio not too far from where I live. So listen, I, you know, people are probably wondering how you have all of this experience and knowledge. So uh, tell us about your journey through the military and, and what was it that even led you to join the military in the first place? Sure. Uh, part of it is uh, when I was born. Um, I was born in the, in the late 50s, not too long after World War II. So it was certainly in living memory. Uh, my maternal grandfather had served overseas during the war. My father had served in the Royal Canadian Air Force. And uh, unbeknownst to me, my future and father-in-law had served in the Canadian Army overseas as well. And I had numerous cousins that also served with the Canadian Armed Forces during the Second World War. So there was a certain amount of living memory. Um, these people did not talk a lot about their experiences, but the fact that I respected them and... Uh, in some ways, I guess I wanted to emulate them, develop a sense of uh, wanting to serve within me. And also the second aspect I would offer was cultural in that uh, the TV shows in the 60s and the 70s uh, were filled with documentaries uh, and comedies and explorations of the impact of the Second World War. And there were also many, many books, hundreds of books out about uh, this 
really traumatic worldwide event. So uh, mm. that knowledge was everywhere. And uh, when I went to university, I studied history, eventually focusing on military history. And that sort of opened my mind to the impact of these things uh, on a larger scale. But also as a teenager, I was uh, a member of the Royal Canadian Army Cadets. And I was also a little bit later when I got a little bit older, uh, a member of the Reserve Army. And both these experiences sort of set me up to see military service as a uh, feasible uh, career. And, uh, you know, you have to make that decision when you're young. So I made yes. that decision and uh, I went into the military and I stayed there a very long time. <laughs> How many years? Uh, in total, between my reserve service and my regular military service, I served for uh, 42 years. Oh, my goodness. Wow. That's impressive, Ian. So you went to university and then enlisted in the military after university? Um, Yes and no. Yeah. Um, okay. I had served as a reserve army member in high school. Uh, then I had a break of uh, about a year and a half. And then I decided to get back into the reserve force. And initially I went into the primary reserve in the infantry, but I found it was taking far too much time from my university studies. So I was looking okay. for how can I keep that connection with the military, but without this huge time commitment. So I became a member of the cadet instructors list, as it was known at the time. I served primarily during the summers teaching army cadets in Gagetown and in Vernon, British Columbia. And uh, then I came to decision point after doing a master's degree at Carleton University, where my age was starting to creep up. And I realized that due to the limits they had on enrollment age, I had to make a decision. So I transferred into the regular uh, military uh, when I was 24 years old. Okay. And so what was it like climbing the ranks in the military? What, what was that experience like for you? Well, I always enjoyed the opportunity to command uh, troops. Uh, the military defines command as the uh, legitimate legal authority given to leaders to uh, direct the activities of their uh, subordinates. And right. that is, in fact, uh, a very much what the military describes as a privilege. And I think that's a good description because you really are entrusted with uh, that authority, with the expectation that you will exercise it wisely, both uh, applying your knowledge and your good judgment in the direction you do give to your subordinates, because in many circumstances, you are literally entrusted with uh, their safety and their lives. So when you were in these command positions, would you say that you already had experienced or were experiencing PTSD? Like, were you, were you trying to manage command as well as uh, mental health? I think that may have been the case later yeah. in my career. Uh, okay. Early on, you're just so caught up in dealing with the day-to-day. -day. Uh, it, it's difficult to slow down long enough to actually say, uh, how am I feeling? Why did I react that way? Um, right. I did go through a number of experiences where my life was threatened in Bosnia, uh, quite violently in a couple of cases. And I just took it as being uh, the price of doing business. And I never really thought about it for probably close to another 20 years. Uh, but mm. then I began to notice as I got older uh, that a lot of these various little incidents probably started to add up or start resurfacing as I got older. Hmm. 
what would you say was your favorite deployment, favorite country experience? Um, my favorite deployment was uh, my time commanding the first disaster assistance response team company in the Central American Republic of Honduras after Hurricane Mitch in November, December of 1998. Uh, I would say it was the uh, my favorite deployment because I had... Uh, just due to circumstances with distance and poor communications and independent operational command, where I got to direct the uh, activities of 158 uh, Canadians uh, working with, uh, I don't know how many dozens of Honduran uh, medical staff and rescue staff um, over the course of about seven weeks. And it was very demanding in that the climactic conditions and the environmental conditions were terrible. Um, in the wake of Hurricane Mitch and an earthquake and a flood. It's like uh, Mother Nature, God, whoever, picked up the Aguan Valley, raised it a thousand feet in the air, spun it over, and then slammed it down. Oh, my gosh. Everything underneath, the people, the villages, the bridges, the buildings, the animals, uh, it was mass death. Hmm. And uh, we really were in a race against, uh, I thought we were in a race against time to save people um, from the impact of the earthquake. That wasn't really the case because we didn't get there until six days after the um, hurricane and earthquake and flood. But what we were dealing with was the uh, people who were injured or wounded, the sort of secondary casualties of the event. And uh, it was my role to uh, prioritize where our aid was going to go. And uh, okay. I was very cognizant of the fact that uh, I had to make the decisions of uh, basically triaging where we were going to uh, send our aid teams. And we had teams that were, we had a medical team of uh, four physicians, 12 nurses, uh, another 20 or so uh, medical assistants. Um, we had uh, people working on uh, providing potable water. We had engineers who were building bridges. Uh, we were working with uh, an air detachment of four helicopters. And we also were working with uh, a defense and security platoon who were my troops from Petawala, okay. who were, were the people that ensured we were protected wherever we were going. So often what we were working against was uh, certainly the time in that many of these people were sick, wounded, or dying, and we had to try to get our aid teams into where we could uh, do the most good. And uh, that was a experience really sort of called on me to both endure the climatic uh, conditions and the environmental conditions as an individual, but also to uh, deal with the decisions I had to make, because it wasn't our National Defense Headquarters in Ottawa making these decisions, it was me mm -hmm. on the ground. And I had to make these decisions based on the information available at the time, always keeping in mind that I was trying to do the greatest good for the largest number of people over the longest period possible. And what that unfortunately meant is some people lived and some people died. Yeah. And so you said you were there for six weeks? Um, close to seven. Close all to in seven. All, because I went down as part of the advanced reconnaissance team. Okay, right. Yeah. So personally, I was down there three days after the event, but the rest of the unit didn't come down until about six days after the event. And so why is that your favorite? 
um, because it was the most independent, uh, most independence okay. I ever had in the military. And it probably developed my capacity to command better than my other roles in that it was all on me. Um, I had to make those decisions without a lot of support, um, without even a lot of communications with my higher command. Uh, They were located on the coast in the city of La Ceiba. And over the course of those six weeks of the actual operation, I had... uh, two or three very uh, chaotic, staticky phone calls and one visit. So I had to make those decisions. And that was both uh, physically demanding, morally demanding, ethically demanding. And uh, at the end of the day, I'm satisfied that I made ethical decisions. Uh, Some of them were very sad. Uh, Pardon me? I'm sorry, I was just going to ask, how was it, you know, after all was said and done, how did you feel about the work that you did? I felt satisfied in that I think we did the best we could with the resources we had. And it was very fulfilling to know that the work we did do helped, uh, I guess, establish a baseline for that region of Honduras to uh, Mm. start its recovery process. All right. Well, that's... That's... um, a lot of responsibility. And I know that you've spoken about, uh, and again, for those of you that are listening, uh, Ian has so many skills sets uh, from from being so involved, I think, in life and then those experiences in the military. So I know that you've done, you do some disaster recovery type training. Is that correct? And so, yes, ha- and so would it be safe to say you've been involved with dis- dis- disaster recovery efforts here in Canada? Um, Yes and no. Um, I'll explain that. Uh, Another one of the roles I had is I was the first commanding officer of the Joint Nuclear Biological Chemical Defense Company, which um, changed its name a few years after I left it to the Canadian Joint Incident Response Unit, CBRN, which stands for Chemical, Biological, Radiological and Nuclear. And in that context, I was working with the Royal Canadian Mounting, Mounted Police uh, Bomb Data Center and their Forensic Identification Service uh, to deal with uh, um, real uh, threats to Canadian security or uh, perceived threats. And we also did a lot of training together. So in that context, I was working in emergency management with the RCMP and also with the Public Health Agency of Canada. And in that role, I had a number of uh, qualifications that I had to take. I took the Civilian Incident Command System courses. I took all their courses up to level four, which is a multi-phase, multi-week disaster. And as I'd already had the experience of actually commanding a multi-level societal Mm -hmm. long-term disaster in real life, that came fairly well. But I also had other courses, such as I was a hazardous material incident commander, which was connected to my du- duties in that role. And uh, I also was a, uh, became a low-level basic forensic investigator with RCMP training. Oh, wow. After that, I also did other roles. I worked in Joint Task Force Atlantic, which is the headquarters for the military in Atlantic Canada, where I was responsible for coordinating the response of the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Special Forces to any disasters we had in Atlantic Canada. 
but also things like uh, tracking, shipping, uh, coordinating uh, a joint response to things like missing ships, um, missing people, um, also uh, helping, assisting the RCMP in their uh, counter-narcotics role and counter-smuggling role. So when did you actually release from the military? What year was that? I released from the regular armed forces in uh, 2016. Okay. And uh, I went on to serve another three years in the reserves, um, leaving the reserves on my 60th birthday in uh, 2019. So what did you do? After that, I mean, most people would just retire, but I know you and you, <laughs> you, you, did, you started a little thing. So let's hear a little bit about that. What, what have you done since you uh, fully retired? Well, in my last uh, couple of years in the regular military, uh, I decided to scratch an academic itch, which I'd had for a long time. And I took a uh, doctorate in intelligence analysis, uh, PhD level, essentially. And uh, after I completed the PhD, I uh, incorporated myself. I'm an incorporated defense consultant. And with that hat on, I have uh, been teaching intelligence studies for seven years now. I uh, attended uh, 12 international conferences, uh, mostly in the United Kingdom as a presenter. And I've uh, contributed a book chapter to uh, a Canadian Armed Forces publication called In Harm's Way, okay. based on some of my experiences in Honduras. I uh, worked as a consultant through an organization known as Callian Group Limited, where I uh, edited a uh, doctrinal tactical manual called the Combat Team Commander's Handbook where essentially I rewrote this tactical manual with a few of the members of my uh, company. And then uh, other than that, uh, the other side of me, so to speak, uh, during that time with my interest in um, trauma and how people recover, and also I think due to various physical injuries, I developed an interest in yoga. <laughs> and uh, I started practicing yoga. In 2008, while well, I was on a United Nations deployment in Ethiopia and Sudan, and I enjoyed it. I kept doing it. And then in 2019, I uh, qualified as a certified yoga teacher at the 200-hour level, and I continued to take course after course after course. And at this point, uh, four or five years later, I'm a 500-hour uh, yoga uh, teacher qualified. I'm a trauma-informed yoga therapy certified teacher, and I'm a trauma-informed mindfulness teacher uh, as well. And I continue to work in those roles as well. And ha and that's and have your own business doing that. Yes, yes. Uh, the defense consultant side and intelligence consultant is an incorporated business. Yeah. Um, my other business, I call it my wellness business with the yoga, the mindfulness and the fitness training, mm -hmm. because I also teach generic fitness for the city of Halifax, is uh, not incorporated, but uh, I am the sole owner and I do include it not in my incorporated taxes, but my personal taxes. Right, right. So what skills do you think, I mean, anyone listening can tell you're very qualified what did you um, learn in the military that, and there's got to be a lot of these, but I guess main skills that, that you learn in the military that you incorporate in the stuff that you're doing today? Sure. Um, what I think are the two main skills are my ability to make decisions on the fly um, or to speak uh, extemporaneously without much preparation at all. 
And, uh, you know, I know you and I have talked about this as being something you noticed with me, but to be very honest, when you've done it year after year after year, Mm -hmm. it becomes second nature to be able to do that. And then the other aspect is, um, I think it really inculcated in me a almost mania for physical fitness. Um, I really, really enjoy um, my yoga and physical fitness teaching. Uh, In fact, it also perhaps I could say it developed a love for teaching in me because Mm. I had a chance to teach a lot in the military. And when I combined that with the ability to speak without much preparation, it's it's one of my greatest joys, I guess, in my post-military career is, is teaching. And then the other thing I think the military didn't so much give me, but uh, honed in my skill set was the uh, ability to write. And that came into play uh, during my doctoral studies. And also I continue to write. Uh, I'm writing three books right now at the moment, uh, one based on a course I'm teaching on the Ukraine conflict one based on how to develop and build and sustain mental resilience. And I'm also writing a novel, uh, a little bit based on family history, just for the fun oh, of it. Oh, that sounds great. So the family history, give us a little bit of that. Sure. Uh, what I'm looking at is I'm basing it loosely on the story of my ancestors who immigrated from Scotland okay. in the 1820s. And uh, coming as an immigrant from a very difficult life in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland to a very difficult life in uh, Cape Breton Island in Nova Scotia, needed, I think, people who were used to uh, hardship, people who were used to pushing through. Um, Over the years, my family transitioned from subsistence farming and fishing to working in the mines, and they worked in the mines for many, many years until my father was able to, uh, after working on the mine, surface to join the Royal Canadian Air Force and then use his veterans allowance to become a teacher. But what I'm using as a thread throughout the novel is how all these hardships tend to almost be passed from generation to generation. And there is a certain amount of inter- intergenerational trauma uh, that I can certainly see in my family on both sides, because both sides of my family had similar experiences that tends to uh, get played out across generations. The, the intergenerational trauma and trauma in itself uh, is, a, is a thing that really um, occupies my mind a lot. I, I think uh, as someone who also lives with PTSD, uh, from a significant amount of trauma through all of my teens, um, uh, I I think often about how what a completely different society we would be if we had effective ways of dealing with trauma early on in people's lives, uh, and and we're able to do that like a good solid 10, 20 years of just effective mental health care, uh, you know, mental health problems that result as of trauma, fix the trauma in, in, in so many people and teach them how to not repeat those patterns. We, it would be a completely different society. Am I wrong? I mean, yeah. I, I agree with you 110%. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I hesitate to say I would not want to necessarily choose the experiences yes. I've had in, had in yeah. life. But where I am now is I'm trying to make use of those experiences plus my uh, formal course knowledge 
to try to help other people along their paths exactly. and finding ways to cope with trauma. And helping them to break that chain, which I think is, is, yes. is brilliant work. So you're very comfortable talking publicly about your disabilities um, and in professional environments, you know, because we see you often yeah. talking with uh, our corporate members and, and talking to them about uh, your particular business. Um, so would you say that this is a, a comfortable, in your experience, is this something that veterans comfortably share, uh, the fact that they have a disability, or is it something that tends to be you know, less open in the community? Well, in my opinion, every veteran, like any other person, is an individual, and they are going to have their own sort of uh, hopes and fears and likes and dislikes. And uh, my experience with my veteran peers has been that there are some at some point in their journey, whether it's a physical injury or a mental health condition, will come to the point where they are comfortable talking about it. Uh, I've usually seen that older veterans tend to be at that point. Um, Some will be comfortable talking in uh, peer groups where they feel that they are with people who understand them and they're not necessarily comfortable talking outside that group. Some, I think, will become comfortable in time uh, once they've integrated their experiences in their overall life history. And once they realize that they're not necessarily going to be judged harshly Mm -hmm. by people outside their peer group. Mm -hmm. And sadly, I have seen some who I don't think will ever get there Mm -hmm. who find escape through alcohol or drugs or perhaps other ways of behaving, which unfortunately some people are just taken to points where they can't necessarily recover as well. Yeah, for sure. So bringing back to when I was talking about how you you present your business to uh, our our corporate members, um, you, as I mentioned earlier on, you are a certified supplier with IWSCC and we support uh, both disabled as well as veteran owned businesses in Canada. We network those businesses with our large corporations that are looking to add uh, disabled as well as veteran owned businesses in their supply chain. And I think you've been certified with IWSCC, I guess we're probably coming up close to two years, is it? Yeah, yep, it's coming yeah. up to two years yeah. in November. So why did you choose to certify with IWSCC? What was the decision making? What was the, the decision factor? Well, uh, initially, the, the first thing was pure curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> when, when you There's reached out to me with, with the invitation and I had to think, what is this organization? Are they legitimate? Where are they coming from? And I did a little bit of research and I said, well, they're a legitimate organization. And I sort of gave it some thought, and I thought, well, I've been diagnosed with six invisible disabilities, and uh, maybe it's worthwhile for me to investigate this organization and see whether it can help me professionally, and maybe to see whether I might be able to assist them in the advocacy role. Right. Right. Well, we're certainly glad that you did. Um, I kind of remember that conversation now that you say you checked in. I think I remember you telling me that you looked into uh, IWSCC at that point. So, um, so yeah, I did. It's the intelligence analyst background coming out. <laughs> Trust but verify. <laughs> That's a good good motto for sure. Um, so you're so you're you're such a highly motivated community member. You're an advocate for veterans. You're an advocate for 
folks with disabilities. Um, what drives you to be so involved in the community and, and what drives you to just be so uh, involved in your life, like in life in general? You, you really seem sure. to reach out and enjoy it. I, I think uh, it starts with the example of my parents. Uh, they were both teachers who were very involved in their community. Uh, working with uh, student groups in high school, church groups, community groups. Uh, my aunts and uncles had similar patterns, um, and I think that sort of set me an example of what was expected as an adult, so to speak. <laughs> and so as I uh, became an adult, I started volunteering as a leader with Wolf Cubs, Scouts, uh, various sports teams, community groups, etc., and that pattern has basically just continued throughout my life. And uh, I think to answer the second part of your question, um, it makes me feel uh, engaged. It makes me feel as if I'm giving back. It's a way, I think, of uh, giving back to the community for the support I've had with my various disabilities. And I think it's also just a feeling of being of use to the larger world. It helps give me a sense of purpose because one of the primary things I've learned through both my academic study and my mental health treatment is that one of the primary things people need uh, when they have a ma major change in their life, whether it's leaving a very demanding occupation like the military or a first responder community, is they have to find renewed purpose in life. And uh, I've been able to do that uh, through a combination of my consulting, uh, my yoga, mindfulness, and fitness coaching. And uh, it gives me a reason to swing my legs over the bed every morning, as opposed <laughs> to uh, waiting for the fish to bite or waiting for the rain to stop on the golf course. So, but what do you do to unwind and relax and, and just get some, some in time? Um, to be honest, I not only teach yoga. Uh, when I do yoga, I really enjoy it. It really helps me relax. Okay. It mellows me out. And what would a vacation look like for you? Do you vacation? Uh, well, uh, short term. <laughs> uh, my wife and one of our daughters are going to spend some time in Fundy Park in New Brunswick on okay. the Atlantic Sea Coast yeah. in a week, yeah. which is a way to just cut the Wi-Fi ties and just relax in nature. Yes. And uh, Big Hand, Big Map, um, I have been to Scotland uh, five years ago, and I'd really like to go back to do a bit of a combination of research mm -hmm. for some of my writing, and also just pure curiosity. Uh, I love history, I love being a tourist, and I think that would be the next sort of upper level vacation. vacation for you. Well, that's great. Thank you, Ian, so much for being here and sharing your time and, and all of your experience and knowledge and personality with us. I, I really enjoy talking to you. I, I, I appreciate you as a human, and I'm really glad that you're here and that you, 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 you have this compunction to reach out and help others because you, you do a lot on a regular basis uh, for others in the community, and, and it's much appreciated. Um, so thank you. Well, thank you very much for your kind words, Deidre, and as always, it's my pleasure. <laughs> and thank everyone else. Thank you to everyone else uh, for being here as well. Um, for more information about IWSCC or supplier diversity and inclusion, you can visit us on our website 
at uh, www.iwscc.ca. You can find us on YouTube or listen in on your favorite podcast platform. Please follow us on social media. We have all kinds of fantastic things on the go uh, on a regular basis. So thanks for tuning in for the Empowering, Empowering Equality podcast for today. And enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs>